afternoon. It's Lee Smith here. Uh, uh, show. We have a really important and um, very important and timely episode today. Uh, and our special guests are Julie Kelly and Darren Beatty. And I see Julie on the list, and I'm going to bring her back one second. And um, I'm going to bring her in one second. We've got uh, Darren, too. There's a, a little bit of a technical difficulty. So if y'all can hold on just one second. Um, let, me, let me figure this out. Sorry for the technical difficulty. We're about to get on with the show in one moment. Thanks. Hey, Julie, we have Julie Kelly here. We're, we're waiting on Darren. We've got a little bit of a technical difficult, uh, uh, technical issue right now. Julie, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, if you, uh, here's Darren right now. That's fantastic. All right. So um, welcome to the Lee Smith Show. We have a really fantastic and important show today. Uh, exposing the insurrection host. And we're going to have a conversation with Julie Kelly and Darren Beatty. And uh, I mean, these are two fantastic reporters. And I have to say, we wouldn't know anything about January 6th, about the real story behind January 6th, if it weren't for Julie and if it weren't for Darren. Really, I, I hope you all are reading Julie and, and Darren, uh, Darren and Revolver, Julie, mostly in American Greatness, but they've both been on Tucker Carlson and elsewhere to talk about their work, to talk about January 6th, to talk about the role of law enforcement setting up Americans, the, the, uh, the, 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 the farce, the extreme damage done to American citizens for exercising their First Amendment rights, protesting on January 6th. And the way that these people have been treated is shameful, un-American, an absolute disgrace. And, and really, we, we have Julie and Darren to thank for this. And it's not just an important show. It's a really timely show. I'm sure that most of you have seen the news uh, about what happened uh, with, the, with the so-called, uh, with, the, with the Gretchen Whitmer so-called kidnap case. And I'm going to allow Julie and Darren to talk about that. And also, we're going to go up to date on some of the stuff that's going on with the January 6th cases. Um, but without further ado, I want to intro. I, I want to welcome Julie and Darren. And um, I guess if you guys could just start off and explain what happened yesterday uh, with this Michigan case with uh, Gretchen Whitmer and the FBI. Well, 
Well, um, do you want me to start? Hi, Lee. Hi, Darren. I called Darren. Yeah, Julie, why don't you start? <laughs> um, Julie, what, okay. yeah, why don't you I start? Mean, and you guys, you know what? I, let, let's keep it really casual. I'm going to try to shut up as much as possible since you two guys know, know what you're talking about. You have the details. So I hope that the two of you will, you know, will, will feel free to, to speak as you like and uh, add information and stuff like that. So please go ahead. Thank you again, Julie and Darren. Well, I will go ahead and talk about the trial and the verdict because I was covering that live for the last three weeks. And then um, hopefully Darren can just give details about the case overall because he's, of course, done uh, exemplary investigative work uh, starting last summer with this case. So I'll just basically talk about the trial. What happened yesterday in a really a shocking verdict is that uh, the four remaining federal defendants accused of conspiring to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer and also um, build a weapon of mass destruction, an explosive device that would have been used in service of this kidnapping. Two of the men were acquitted completely on all charges. And two of the men, there was a hung jury for the other two defendants. Um, and it was really a, a, quite a bombshell verdict because what it did in, in, by default is prove the FBI was guilty of entrapment because that was the argument that the four defense attorneys, I thought, did a, a brilliant job uh, of presenting that to the jury. Um, they really were up against the wall. First of all, it's very difficult to prove FBI entrapment. You have to prove that uh, they were induced into committing this crime by agents and also uh, prove that they were not predisposed to committing this crime, which that's really the toughest hurdle to sort of overcome in entrapment. Um, it, but that is exactly what happened. Uh, and so the two men who were acquitted went home to their families last night. The other two men, Adam Fox and Barry Croft Jr., remain incarcerated as the government considers retrying them, which is just insane and crazy. And I'm getting some reports of what the hung jury was. And if it's true, uh, what, what, I, what I heard about the, the verdicts there, uh, DOJ is going to have a tough time convincing anybody that, that they need to retry these men. But it was a three-week trial. It was fascinating. Um, they had took uh, the one main informant, Dan Chapel, took the stand for three days. I did not find his testimony compelling. Obviously, the jury didn't either. But this case is riddled with scandal, as Darren can explain. Um, but over 15 days of testimony, numerous FBI agents and uh, the informant, other experts, one of the uh, agents who was the primary FBI handler in the case, Jason Chambers, testified. The two men who pleaded guilty testified against their co-defendants. I think that also backfired. But anyway, uh, a stunning blow, well-deserved blow to this Justice Department and this FBI. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll see what they decide from here. But for a moment, we should savor the rare glimpse of justice in America, I guess it still yeah. exists um, Julie, in, in Western for, Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Thanks. Thank you for uh, filling us in. Darren, um, Darren, do you want to, uh, w would you like to uh, speak a little bit about the, um, about the decision yesterday? I think if you, if you hit, there's a microphone. Okay. Yep. Yeah, there you Can go. you hear me? 
Yes, great. Fantastic. Awesome. Thanks. Welcome yes, and so thanks again. First of all, thanks for thanks for having me on. Thanks for having Julie on. Julie has done incredible work on this, following in great detail every step of the trial. Um, and as she points out, this is a rare <laughs> glimmer of justice, if not optimism, because I think optimism is prospective in nature, but it's a rare glimmer of, of justice in an otherwise uh, sordid series of events. And when I say sorted, I choose my words carefully just to get a sense of how deranged and degenerate, not to mention dysfunctional, our FBI is. I think this case actually gives a nice little window into that, setting aside the whole entrapment issue for a moment. So among the FBI agents and informants working on this case, one of them in the course of the case was arrested for beating the hell out of his wife on the way back from a swingers club rendezvous. Okay, that's one of them. The other one was, um, I think he was excluded from testimony because he was moonlighting in his own sort of weird private cybersecurity grift operation um, that he promoted through this Twitter account, BuzzFeed covered this, he was promoting it through this Twitter account, giving off uh, classified uh, information about the Michigan case. So this guy was excluded. One of the key informants, a long time, decades long informant uh, for the feds, his name was Steve Robeson. Um, he actually, there's, there's a remarkable clip that's available on one of the very early revolver.news stories covering this, of this guy, Steve Robeson, in a group Zoom chat with some of the other um, people who ended up getting indicted for this. And they're all saying, geez, you know, we're, we, we know we've got informants, we know that someone's a rat, and then they go through this whole discussion, and then ultimately, basically, Robeson admits right there on the spot, yeah, I was kind of a rat. And um, it turns out that he has a bizarre criminal history, and in an interesting turn of events throughout the course of the trial, um, the feds turn on him. They turn on their own informant and slap him with a gun charge that very conveniently leads to him not being able to testify on behalf of the defense, which desperately wanted to hear him testify under oath because he played an instrumental role in setting up this so-called conspiracy that turned out to be another kind of fedsurrection style hoax. And so it's, I think, just before we get into the whole larger significance, the entrapment um, yeah. issue, what that means in terms of the larger agenda against the American people, I just think one aspect of this story is it offers an incredible window into the kinds of people who wield this level of power over the American people and under, you know, whose total kind of a discretionary option to go after people and to set people up and these kinds of things is capable of generating media narratives, national media narratives, casting a whole group of people, in this case, 
Trump supporters, anyone who criticizes the regime effectively as domestic terrorists. So I think that little window through the kind of series of degenerate episodes of these various informants and agents is kind of an instructive and interesting story in its own right. That's fast. Darren, thanks for, for that great introduction. And I'm just, I'm just going to ask you, because again, both of you guys have written about this so well. What do you mean, if you can be a little more specific, I mean, you're talking about dirt bags here, basically. Not, but, you know, n- not, um, maybe not evil, but not, not, not the best that America sends, right? Is that what you're <laughs> talking about? That these are the kind of, that these are the kind of people who are They're not sending their you know, best. <laughs> who are targeting American citizens? Right. The FBI is never sending its best. Right. So, yeah. But if you can explain if you can explain a little bit more what you mean by the kinds of people who have the discretionary power to employ the full power of the department of the FBI and the Department of Justice against American citizens. Yeah. You can, oh, let's you can speak let's a bit more tag about team that with this. Julie, with Julie. I'm sure Julie has something to add here. Well, I, I describe them as lowlifes. I mean, that's basically what they are. Richard Trask, who is the man Darren was referring to, who was the special agent in charge who signed the original federal criminal complaint against these six defendants. Uh, he was arrested. Then the other lowlife agent who was moonlighting on the side, Steve Robeson, the lowlife convicted criminal that was revealed in the trial that he has a rap sheet in nine states. But also works out of numerous FBI field offices across the eastern half of the country. What was stunning, uh, one aspect of how sloppy uh, this FBI is, is their poor vetting process for informants. What they testified, one of the agents testified in the trial, is that all informants are paid, paid paid for in cash. If they have to, if they want expenses reimbursed, they don't have to submit any receipts. The FBI's vetting process will look at any criminal record. Obviously, that doesn't deny them their role as an FBI agent uh, informant because it certainly didn't with Steve Robeson. They don't do any sort of um, financial history. So this is why you have a man like Dan Chappell, who took the stand, uh, confidential human source Dan. They called him Big Dan. Some of the defendants called him Dad because he took on this very personal father figure role to some of these guys who were just real misfits with no friends, no family, really. He was paid, compensated at least $60,000 by the FBI, mostly in cash, also paid uh, reimbursed for expenses. They bought him a $3,000 laptop computer, bought him a new smartwatch, bought him tires for his car. This is the sort of thing that the FBI does. Dan Chappell was made an informant a week after he went, allegedly, this is the story, I don't believe it, allegedly went to a cop who was a friend and told this cop how alarmed he was at some of the social media chatter at one of these alleged militia groups. A week later, he was hired Uh, in March of 2020 to be an informant. And he is really the one who was paid to put all of these men together. These men did not know each other before Dan Chappell and Steve Robeson got involved. They really stitched this group of of random people, including one man from Delaware, 
uh, into this group and was paid handsomely. He's a truck driver for postal service subcontractor. You know, it's not like he's a wealthy guy. Um, And so this raises all sorts of issues that we need to make sure that Congress takes a look at because it's the type of people, not just the low-life agents who are in charge, but these low-life, in some cases, criminal informants that they are paying cash to that have a terrible vetting process, process and actually pose a bigger threat because they are actively trying to incite, induce these kind of crimes and get these people all whipped up like they did in the Whitmer case, something really tragic could have happened because of what this FBI was doing, including in front of children. That's a whole other layer of the story. But hopefully, between what Darren and I are just explaining, what, what, we're giving what, some what, context as to who these men, who these people are. I was just going to ask, Julie, what, what is the, I, I, I don't know about the, the what you're referring to, the, the children stuff. Can, can you elaborate a bit? So on a number of occasions, Steve Robeson and Dan Chappell, the informants, would organize what they called field training missions. This is how it was described to the court, weapons training. But the people who attended thought that it was some kind of barbecue. Now, keep in mind, this is during lockdowns in 2020, especially in the state of Michigan. The restaurants are closed. Bars are closed. People have nowhere to go. So you have, you know, kind of these isolated oddballs, maybe a couple of their kids uh, who are invited to these these outings with like minded people who are furious about lockdowns and the rioting that's going on. So you heard and I thought this was really egregious by the government. You know, they would have a seven hour, seven hours of recording from one meeting or barbecue or excursion, and they would play a 15 second clip. So one clip is a Barry Croft Jr., uh, one of the two men who uh, the jury's deadlocked in. He's still in, in jail. Actually, I just talked to him today. Um, you can hear him joking. His 12 year old daughter comes over and you hear him joking She's offering him a Dorito and you hear him say, oh, not now, honey, daddy's busy building an explosive. So they played that. So and other people testified they brought their kids to these events. Well, the explosive, the idea of the explosive is being encouraged by Dan and Steve Robeson and then another undercover agent they brought in towards the end. This really could have led to some serious tragic outcomes. And quite frankly, the FBI is very lucky that it didn't. Wow. Um, Darren, do you mind? Yeah, you know, can you elaborate more on the nature of the people, uh, the nature of the people involved in this, the nature of the people setting up Americans? Look, because I mean, one of the things that struck me, one of the things that struck me reporting Russiagate at a certain point was the, the kind of people the FBI targeted Right. These were these were people who didn't come from powerful positions in Washington. They had no patrons, really. No one was there to vouch for them. And of course, this even applied to Donald Trump, who's an outsider. This appears to be the kind of people that federal law enforcement perceive as weak and vulnerable. And that's why they go after them to serve their own ends. Do you guys think that's what happened here? I mean, here, clearly, these a lot of these. FBI agents seem to fit a particular profile of the kind of um, not terribly smart or sophisticated sort of bully uh, henchmen for the regime. Um, 
and the informants are kind of washed up ne'er-do-well types who have a compelling economic incentive to set up people who, um, you know, it's hard to imagine them really organizing anything, let alone a legitimate threat to the U.S. government. Initially, just as a, a, a detail, initially, um, just as part of the scare headlines of, oh, there's a wave of dangerous domestic terrorism sweeping through the nation. Uh, uh, beware of these Trump supporters, sort of the initial swarm of headlines. One of the uh, original details is that, oh, the plotters met in some kind of underground bunker type situation. Well, the reason for that is that um, one of the so-called plotters was so impoverished that he like lived in the basement of some vacuum, a repair shop. Not that it was just some secret bunker. It's just a testament to how kind of down and out these people are, which is, you know, it's not a justification for breaking the law, but it, it goes to show that they're not really picking people who could potentially be a threat at all to the country. What they're doing is they're picking on people who are so vulnerable and fit the profile of people who are probably very easily yeah. manipulated. And they give informants all the cash incentive in the world to manipulate these people. And then they create the illusion of a terror plot that otherwise wouldn't have existed. And then they get their lackeys in the media to amplify a narrative that ultimately justifies weaponizing the entire American national security apparatus uh, against against Trump supporters. And that part is still stuck. Despite the uh, justice of the verdict, the injustice right. that remains is that the narrative damage has been done. Well, I, I, I was going to ask both you guys, how has the, how has the media been responding to the decisions in the, in the Whitmer case? Uh, I mean, as expected. They have really buried it. I think yeah. DOJ might have sensed that this was coming. And so they got ahead of it with these announcements of a plea deal with one of the detained Proud Boys saying he pleaded guilty and mm. he's going to cooperate with the government. So that allowed places like the Washington Post and other you know, regime uh, apologists, propagandists to sort of bury this. Um, but I, I do oh, think- Oh, this is interesting. I'm sorry. I just want to, I just want to make sure. So you're saying that you believe that DOJ probably had wind of what was going to go down in the Whitmer case. And to get in front of that, they wanted to make a point about the January 6th case. And that's where they got the proud boy. Um, th th that's where they got the proud boy uh, inserted him in there. Is, is that is that what you're saying? That's sort of what I sense, um, because the okay. timing is just oh. too coincidental. I mean, the jury right. no, began it totally deliberations makes sense. on this Monday. Is guys, right. Yeah, this is how these guys yep. act. Totally makes sense. They're always getting in front of something like that. Well, then, look. Let, let me ask you both: um, What does this mean for the DOJ's cases, J January six cases? We saw the one case earlier this week. I mean, it's it's still it's still a, an, an, an absurd farce. The idea that this that, that that this guy was was held so long in jail, but finally the judge said, "Well, the police held the door open for him, so he's clear." 
So where, where do we go now? What does the Whitmer case, how does this affect the January 6th cases going forward? And will it affect the way that other Americans perceive who aren't following this story closely and who don't know what's going on? Will it affect how these cases, the January 6th cases are being perceived and portrayed? I, I would like Darren to uh, explain the biggest connection between the two, because this is always blows people's yes, minds. Right. Darren tweeted that last night. Yeah. Darren, if you can elaborate on this. Yes. This, so this is detail. Yeah. This is an old discovery that um, Revolver picked up in a long, long ago, long gone piece that deserves uh, resurrection and constant repetition. And that is that the um, head of the Detroit FBI field office, a guy named Stephen D'Antuono, um, just days after the initial arrests of these so-called plotters, FBI Director Ray promoted him to the D.C. field office, where he went on to oversee uh, the January 6 cases. And that's a very direct and suspicious personal connection between these two cases that really helps to punctuate the broader context of multiple parallels between these two events from the similarity in the plot, even though everyone talks about the kidnapping plot, the Michigan episode also involved a a storming, quote unquote, storming of the state capitol. It involved a militia group called the Three Percenters that is one of the three main militia groups also imputed to January 6th. And now they have this guy, Stephen D'Antuono, who's involved in both um, cases and investigations. And so the parallels here are really so compelling that it's impossible to not at least look at January 6th with a certain level of suspicion. And what's remarkable about some of the reporting on the Michigan case, otherwise very good reporting, um, you know, a lot of people have praised BuzzFeed's reporting, and I think for what it is, it does a good job. But at the same time, um, maybe just in order to get away with reporting it on it well at all, Um, BuzzFeed goes out of its way to dissuade people from even contemplating the parallels that I just described, saying we need to look at the Whitmer case in some kind of uh, self-contained, hermetically sealed type environment that could in no way illuminate what might have happened just months later using the same militia groups, the same plot to storm a capital, all of these parallels, the same guy. No, no, don't pay any attention of this. And that's what I find deeply suspicious. Of course, this doesn't say anything dispositive about January 6th, but this parallel is actually one of the, one of the handful of things that initially um, uh, inspired Revolver and team at Revolver to um, take a closer look at what was going on with with January 6th. And sure enough, a lot of anomalies arose on on their own accord. 
Um, but I think we have to understand these two things as as connected, um, both kind of conceptually and also practically down to the level of the people involved. This is you, you raised something that I wanted to I wanted to get out of both of you, which is um, I want to know what it was about January 6th that attracted your attention, that told you there was something f- fishy about it. And so, Julie, if I can ask you, if I can ask you first, when you first started reporting it, yeah, what what struck you? Why did you say there's something wrong here? Well, I mean, I think watching it that day, um, my reaction and Lee, you and you joined my podcast with Liz Sheld the next day. And I think we sort of had the same um, same uh, beliefs about the overhyped uh description and coverage of what happened over, you know, four hours. And so I think that that was it right away. Just something seemed really off. Um, There had been, of course, stop the steal rallies in November and December, not to mention the hundreds or thousands of Trump rallies where nothing like this ever happened. And so I think just having covered Russia collusion, of course, nowhere close to what you did. um, But knowing that story, knowing what this FBI is capable, understanding the desperation of this government to get rid of Donald Trump permanently, um, it just just felt off. And so then when I started seeing what was happening in the investigation and the rounding up of Americans and the mm. first case that I covered was Cui Griffin, the Cowboys for Trump organizer who never went inside the building, was far outside, was arrested, but nonetheless denied bail because of his involvement in January 6th. And I thought, well, this doesn't sound right. And so that's really when I started covering it. I opened up a PACER account. I don't have a law degree Um, but just started reading all of these motions and hearing what these judges were saying. And it was just, it was just astonishing. I could not believe what I was hearing and reading, what this FBI was doing, what these judges were saying, what the prosecutors were saying in these motions, criminalizing otherwise normal, lawful political activity. And so, um, that's really how I got started covering it. Thanks, Darren. What was the, you know, what, what, what first struck you that told you there was something strange going on here? Well, um, contextually, the connection with the Michigan case is certainly uh, certainly very, uh, very suspicious. And then there were a series of just narrative collapses um, pertaining to January 6th that uh, Revolver um, covered in great detail. And I know Julie covered it very well as well. But we know the the case of, for instance, um, Brian Sicknick and the whole narrative initially that Sicknick was bludgeoned to death with a fire hydrant. And that turned out to be (laughs) uh, turned out to be false. And then they switched to another lie, which is that Um, He died from complications resulting from a certain kind of spray. Um, And Revolver did a real, and this actually led to the very serious indictment of an individual called George Tanios, who was charged and just gives you a sense of the standard brought to bear on the people they really wanted to go after this so-called shock and awe standard propounded by Michael Sherwin, 
So they throw a 50-year a, a level charge of conspiracy at this guy, George Tanios. What did Tanios oh, do? When, when his buddy asked him something along the lines of, should we, should we get the pepper spray yet in the commotion? He said, no, no, not yet. And I guess the yet part, from the government's point of view, made Tanios guilty of being a participant in a conspiracy to um, use a deadly force against an officer with the pepper spray. And the reason the pepper spray was so pregnant with severity and meaning is that this was the next hoax explanation that the media came up with to account for Brian Sicknick's death. And so Revolver went into a painstaking sort of comparative image analysis that ended up showing that he didn't even you know, spray at all and had nothing to do with uh, Sicknick. And thankfully, Tanios was um, acquitted of those charges. But again, the, uh, the narrative sticks. I think now and again, you still hear politicians, even non-senile politicians, um, allude to the deadly attack that, you know, that right. the preparatory work for that was the lie regarding Sicknick. They're not referring to Ashley Babbitt, I guarantee you. And so there, there are a lot of sort of preliminary lies, narrative collapses that surrounded this event. And within the context of the Michigan case, which very early on, the first news source to cover the kind of suspicious entrapment oriented um, uh, hues uh, to the case is uh, the Jacobin magazine. But of course, they didn't dare make any connections to January 6. So the whole context of those things um, led to a uh, an examination of the original charging documents, uh, the January 6th charging documents for a lot of the Oath Keepers, some of the Proud Boys, noticing um, sort of a very bizarre pattern of selective non-prosecution. And that's what really, uh, really uh, rang a lot of alarm bells. And then I wouldn't say the rest is history because the history hadn't been fully written, but that's really um, the uh, the throb of inspiration and where it came from. I, I mean, I, I just have to say again, it's it's hardly rhetorical that if it were not for your coverage, if it were not for Julie's coverage, what would we know? I'm, I'm, actually, that's a question. What would we know? about January 6th, if it weren't for, you know, the way that the two of you have covered it? Well, um, just a quick point on that. I will say that as a matter of news coverage, this really underscores the power and importance of narrative formation. And this is sort of a meta point, so you can stop me in the middle of it, but I think it's worth making, which is that so much of the right-leaning media is caught in this reactive posture of existing within narratives created for them by their enemies and reacting to it. And in some part, I think it's just there was the, the right was just mired in this narrative that, oh, the, the whole story of January 6th was 
it was some Antifa people. Because Antifa was on the mind because people made natural comparisons with, wait a minute, they're calling this insurrection. What about the damage that Antifa had been right. doing all the previous summer? It's natural to make that comparison. And then people are saying, oh, Antifa must have been involved and so forth. And um, there could be some involvement. I'm not saying that's entirely true. But as a narrative, it lacked force. There's a reason mm. that the, the media did not freak out about that narrative. But once the huh. Fed-surrection narrative took off on the force of its own internal logic and evidence, that's when we saw a media freak out of proportions that we hadn't seen since, really since the Trump days. Only Trump could generate that level of freak out. When, when Tucker picked up on the revolver story about the so-called unindicted co-conspirators, which is... Uh, the media went absolutely right. nuts. And there's a reason for that. And it's such a, it's a seemingly subtle adjustment, but it makes all the difference. And there's absolutely a reason that that particular narrative freaked them out in the way that all the other mm -hmm. narratives didn't. And it's important specifically to understanding what the truth is in relation to January 6th. But more generally, it, un it shows how crucial it is to get the narrative right and how just one adjustment. Hold on, hold on. Hold on, we just had a little trouble hearing you there. Hold on, hold on, Darren. Darren, can you hear me? Darren? Hey, Darren? Can you hear me? We, don't, we just lost a little bit of that at the end there. I don't know if you headset or something or what. Hello? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Yeah. I missed that. Yeah, what we, did you we, say? We just, we just lost you for we just lost you for about a minute or something. There, you were you were speaking and you sounded very distant. So if you can just go, I'm sorry, but if you can just, uh, it was great stuff. I just want to make sure we all have it. What you were yes. saying about oh. the, you know about the narrative about the narrative adjustment. I think that's what we started to lose. Right. I was simply saying that that is the difference that a seemingly subtle narrative adjustment can make. It makes the difference between just existing and with the, within this reactive information ecology where you're reacting to whatever narratives the media environment throws at you, or you make a subtle adjustment to the narrative and you take a proactive stance and all of a sudden you are shaping the way people think and talk about one of the most significant events in in the country's history and and that's the power of narratives and it's something that really is crucial for everyone in the media to understand i fascinating i absolutely uh, i absolutely agree part of it is is that if they uh, if they tie you down if you have to deal with their facts and contest their facts the whole time that's part of the point you need to understand and shape your own account 
There's data there. There's evidence. That's what you need to take to make your own story to explain what actually happened. If you're contesting their narrative the whole time, you're going to lose, right? Because they're just going to throw garbage and detail at you. And Julie, th this is something that you and I talked about like m many years ago with Brushagate. So I guess if, if, if I could just get you to hop in on this, because again, this is the thing, you have reported actual facts, things that really happened here, uh, and 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 this is counter to the establishment story. So if you, if you can just yeah, if you can just speak about that a bit. Well, I mean, the narrative setting is so important, and I write about this in my book um, about January sixth, and that is that the term insurrection, the word insurrection, just like the word collusion, was planted very early. On, the, on January 6th, 2021. Actually, it had sort of been floated around by the anti-Trump forces throughout 2020, as you will recall. Um, there was this whole game book put together by anti-Trump forces, including Never Trumpers and the de uh, top Democrats, who sort of, um, they kind of played, game played what would happen after the election. And in this sort of roadmap, the four scenarios that might have been possible, they actually suggest, and they, this was planted throughout the media starting really in, in the summer of 2020, um, that Trump would be the one who would call for this in, for an insurrection if Biden won. So the word was already floating around. Well, what was interesting, and I think, and Lee, I have to credit again, your coverage and Devin Nunes and his team of what they did related to Russiagate, is that that after that day, and it just sort of reeked like a fusion GPS uh, operation. That day, the media and lawmakers, as the chaos is going on, start using the word insurrection. So you have a lawmaker, you have Democratic lawmakers tweeting from their, their uh. place of safety, calling it an insurrection. Joe Biden addressed the nation at four right. o'clock. So things are still happening. He calls it an insurrection. Hmm. George W. Bush called it an insurrection as his statement. As you know, Lee, none of this happens on accident. This was completely right. orchestrated. So the narrative was set early. And regardless of what facts come out, and now we're seeing so many narrative-busting evidence coming out in these trials and other reporting, um, it still doesn't matter because you're going to have tens of millions of Americans who believe this was an armed insurrection and people like Brian Sicknick and other officers were murdered by Trump supporters You know, on down the list. Um, but that simply isn't true. But you know, too, here we are almost six years later, the launch of Crossfire Hurricane. There are a lot of Americans who are still interested in this, who want the truth. And even though it's very slow in coming out, it still matters to some people. Um, yeah, it, it matters to the it matters to the country as a whole, even if perhaps half of the country doesn't understand that yet and maybe never will. Well, so I just saw news that. Um, that a, a, a federal judge may uh, give the okay for a group targeting Marjorie Taylor Greene over January 6th. So my question to both of you is, what, what's the purpose of the insurrection narrative? Is it to keep Donald Trump from running in 2024? Is it to destroy, um, is it to destroy America first candidates, America first officials. 
Is it to target Trump supporters? Is it to target the America first, the, the, the pro-America section of the American public? Or all of these things? What, what's the purpose of this? Why won't they let it go? And are we just going to keep seeing these operations again and again targeting Americans? One of you guys want to pick this up? Julie, you want to take this? Sure. I was going to wait for Darren, but um, all of the above. Um, and then also, yeah. of course, to bury what happened, the unlawfulness, the the stolen uh, 2020 election, and also to just to really halt any election integrity laws that are being considered in yeah. numerous states. As we've seen, the president and others, including DOJ officials, refer to this as, you know, some sort of mini insurrection. If people want to, these lawmakers and governors want to tighten up existing laws and make sure what happened in 2020 doesn't happen yeah. again. So it serves numerous uh, uh, political purposes for the Democrat on a, a lot of different levels. Um, but what's happening to MTG is, is just one example. You also have this group that's targeting uh, lawyers who defended election lawsuits, trying to get them disbarred. I mean, this is right. uh, really a dangerous, unprecedented crusade, which should raise in people's minds the idea that January 6th was just an organic uprising. You can't just pretend that this was all mm. just sort of a big accident. And wow, what a gift to the Democrats. And look at how they're exploiting it. Um, this right. was all a setup. It was an inside job. So the Democrats and the media, never Trump Republicans, could do uh, exactly what they're doing right now. Mm. Darren? Hey, yes, sorry, it's having uh, issues there. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, they're not going to stop this narrative. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot more at stake here than simply the outcome of any particular election, including 2020 or even the 2024 election. What this is, is the consolidation of the national security bureaucracy um, that is now actuated according to a much more explicit political purpose, and that is to destroy any kind of oppositional energies, principally the energies associated with Donald Trump's election, but not exclusive to that. Really anything that threatens the complete stranglehold they have over information and the direction of the country. And um, that's really uh, the larger agenda at work. It's the agenda facilitated by the um, false narratives surrounding the Whitmer case, surrounding the January 6th case. Um, it is the broader context in which you have the Department of Homeland Security originally created in the aftermath of 9-11, now saying that the number one threat to national security is quote unquote um, white supremacy, domestic white right. supremacy. So this is all part of a really reconfiguration of the government at its most fundamental level. Mm -hmm. And this is a development that American people really need to understand. And I think this is really gets to uh, the Russiagate hoax and kind of the national security states sort of more specific 
um, war against the Trump presidency. And it's that really politics just won't be able to deliver that much, even if we do uh, get fair elections and get the person that we want into the White House, even if we do do that, which is a big if at this point, um, that will also be, if not largely impotent, certainly um, severely debilitated and limited in what it can do um, if we don't bring this whole national security apparatus under control in some way. And the problem with that is that it's, you know, it's just not the kind of thing that people want to hear because people want, people would rather hear kind of false solutions and false optimism uh, than hear sort of a sober, but maybe less right. optimistic assessment of the actual situation is that um, it's, there's no easy answer to that. But unless we act, actually acknowledge that as the chief bottleneck to our politics, we're ultimately going to be dancing in the playground of illusions where politics is pretty much exclusively fake, performative, and self-satisfying. Right. I've I've spoken with both of you about this, and I think both of you, though though you've been kind to me, I think that you both think that I've been um, uh, overly optimistic in some cases. Uh, I might go, you know, you might even characterize some of the times my positions as naive. I, I, I don't see the hope there. And as you were describing, I, I agree. I don't see the hope coming from, um, from politics. I do believe, however, in the resilience and resourcefulness of the, of, of the American, of the American people who now are having, uh, access to more and more of this information, exactly what's going on, so they can make these decisions. Look, one of the things that I think is important, I know I've spoken about this with, with, with Julie in the past, but we talk about the, the role of the U.S. Capitol Police uh, in January 6th, and one of, there are many reasons that Republican legislators will not talk about U.S. Capitol Police, but one of the main reasons is because the primary job of U.S. Capitol Police is actually not to let people in and out of the you know, uh, in and out of buildings on Capitol Hill. The main job, it seems, and the reason they get so much money is to investigate different threats against lawmakers. So I think in some ways it, it's, uh, the, the, the issue, the problem is cooked into the structure of that relationship. So you're not going to have a lot of Republican legislators going after U.S., you know, calling out the Capitol Police for their abuses, you know, because they, they, they feel that that's who's helping protect them. So, but in addition, there are structural problems with the Republican Party, which is supposed to be the instrument defending the pro-America part, the pro-America sector of the United States of America. So I can speak optimistically. If if I can jump in. Yeah, no, no, please. Yeah, definitely jump in really quickly here. Earlier, you asked about sort of the 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 media's coverage of the Whitmer verdict. And there's a piece mm-hmm. that I'm sure um, Julie saw. It's an NBC, a drudge, uh, the, the pathetic drudge report, reincarnation of the drudge report um, has linked to it. And it's basically taking the line that 
oh, I can't believe the right is celebrating this verdict. I thought the right is supposed to be pro-national security and pro-law enforcement and all of this, which is, of course, a ridiculous take. But she's touching, the author of this is touching on something significant. And it really is that if the national security state is pretty much weaponized politically on behalf of the Democrats, in a sense, even though it's not something that really fits into Democrat-Republican, but the national security state is weaponized politically largely against the enemies of the Democrats and the left. I think that's uh, a fair characterization. Um, And so it makes complete sense that the Democrats and the left, barring, you know, sort of the the old guard of, you know, principled anti-war leftists, but for the most part, as a political matter, it makes sense for the left to support the um, ambitions and the agenda set by the national security state, including the agenda as it relates to foreign policy. And so when everyone wonders, like, What's going on? I thought the, the, the Democrats were supposed to be the anti-war party. Why are they all calling for, you know, World War Three level situation? That, to me, makes complete sense. The national security state is now its major purpose is to destroy their political enemies. What doesn't make sense to me right. is that so many people on the right, on the one hand, they, they understand the hoax of January 6th. They understand the hoax of what the FBI has become. They understand what the intelligence community uh, did to Trump and so forth. And yet this, this understanding is so hyper compartmentalized that the second that the national security state and its organs in the media, including some on Fox, say, OK, this is you're supposed to support this war here. They all rally around like a kind of battered spouse syndrome, where now they're some of the biggest cheerleaders for the very institutions whose dominant purpose is to destroy them politically within the United States. And so I think this is something that's sort of part of the larger sort of um, political education that we need to really receive Mm. from the Whitmer case and the January 6th case is that even though dispositionally as a matter of political psychology, people on the right really want to venerate just and well-functioning institutions of power, these institutions are no longer just. They're dysfunctional. And even worse than that, they're actively hostile to the American people, in particular people on the right, and that this ought to inform their posture when the national security state tells them they should believe something or support something in relation to the latest foreign policy agenda that they have. And um, so it's just all of this stuff is connected and the right cannot win if they all of a sudden become cheerleaders for the national security state trying to destroy them when it's another context other than these direct events like Russia Gate and January 6th. Right. No, that's great. I think I think you're exactly right. It's been very surprising to watch the response without us getting into Ukraine too much. And I'm going to let both of you go in a couple of minutes because, you, you know, I, I, I agreed not to hold you, you too long. But yes, it's very strange. It's like I, I don't understand now why uh, hawkish Republicans are nonetheless supporting the same people who have been targeting American citizens. 
this may, this makes no sense but right it's it, it, it's it's almost a, a it, it is a reflex action at this point we're the law and order party we're the hawkish party we're the anti-russia party that's what we do that's what we know and and clearly it seems however that large parts of the american public that certainly the america first movement does not see things the same way julie i i, I wanted to ask you because look you you have you have both dealt with uh proactive members of the Republican Party who have defended uh, and who have stood up for January 6th defendants. So, yeah, if, if you can give a little light on the, you know, uh, shed a little light on the good guys like Marjorie Taylor Greene um, and explain somewhat why other Republican legislators, why they won't step up for their own base. It's astonishing, It really is. And I mean, I think the bottom line is they are just cowards. And that's why the verdicts in the Whitmer case and what was revealed in this trial and in all of the documents, all the evidence related to what the FBI did here, the Republicans cannot turn away from this. They might want to try to Mm -hmm. ignore January 6th and some other scandals. Um, You know, they promised to get to the bottom of Russiagate. They never did, with the exception of Devin Nunes. And of course, the Republicans tried to stop him from doing that. But this is so egregious, so damaging. And look, the bottom line, and I'll have a piece up on this tomorrow morning, this was again an example of the FBI interfering in a presidential election. It's really important for people to uh, to to know that these arrests were made on October 7th and 8th of 2020. Um, Gretchen Whitmer gave a very dramatic right. video speech. Dana Nessel, who is the Michigan uh, Attorney General Democrat, she gave a huge press conference with officials from DOJ and the FBI. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris hammered on this for days and days. I mean, Joe Biden, I was just watching again today, was just ranting and raving at a campaign stop in Michigan towards the end of October Uh, blaming Trump for this uh, kidnapping plot, saying he's inciting domestic terrorists. I mean, this went on and on. The difference between, of course, 2020 and 2016 is that you had millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans already voting by mail when the to coincide with this damaging uh, headlines. Now, I sort of got into a little dispute with Ken Bensinger, uh, the BuzzFeed reporter who's done a ton of coverage on this on Twitter the other day, because I suggested there was no reason why these men had to be arrested on October 7th or 8th. Um, And what happened after they were arrested is DOJ went to the court and asked for a delay in issuing a grand jury indictment saying they needed to still collect evidence and that the threat to Gretchen Whitmer was so imminent that these men had to be arrested right then and there on October 7th and 8th. Well, of course, I said, called BS on this, And Ken Bensinger came back and said, well, this is very custom in criminal cases. And I said, well, what was the threat? And you know what he said to me? That Dan Chappell's cover was going to be blown. That was the threat. I said, so wait a second. These men were arrested by the FBI, thrown in prison, given these phony kidnapping charges, not because they were actually going to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, put her on a boat and row her across Lake Michigan to Wisconsin or maybe execute her in the middle of Lake Michigan. They did it because Dan Chappell's cover was going to be blown. That's not a reason why you arrest innocent men on trumped up charges. 
So this was another example of election interference, but far more damaging. We will never know how many votes that impacted, especially in the state of Michigan, mm. where this was obviously a local story as well. Um, so Republicans yeah. cannot turn away from this. This they have to they have to confront this in addition to the other FBI scandals, uh, including January 6th. But this is this is something that they will be hopefully the foray uh, or the conduit to go after uh, this really irredeemably corrupt and vengeful FBI. Is it possible that anyone will look at the Whitmer case? I'll ask both of you. Is it possible any Republican legislators will look at the Whitmer case and be like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to jump on this. And 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 is it possible anyone is going to see this as a political winner in the same way that they've weaponized in the same way the Democrats have weaponized January 6th and Whitmer, as you're saying? And Julie, by the way, that's a great point. I never thought about that. Of course, it's more FBI uh, election interference. Absolutely. Um, is there any chance that Republicans are going to say, you know what, this looks like a winner. I've got an enormous amount of people out there who are furious about the Whitmer thing. I've got an enormous, uh, an enormous number of people who are furious about January 6th, including some of my constituents. I'm going to jump on this now because it looks like the momentum is going the other way. And with me, uh, with me pushing, we might have a lot of momentum. What do you guys think? I mean, I think so. What was funny, House Judiciary um, quote tweeted me yesterday because I tagged them and said, hey, hello, look what happened. This is election interference. And they, uh, whatever, quote tweeted me and said, oh, yes, you know, we're going to, we will, we're going to hold people accountable. But the reaction to that tweet, of course, by everyone on our side was like, sure, we've heard this before. We don't believe you. We don't trust that you're going to do anything because, of course, unfortunately, Jim Jordan, the the ranking member of House Judiciary, has said nothing about this abusive investigation into January 6th or the holding of political prisoners. Um, And so, you know, will they be able to use this Whitmer case, uh, as I said, as a way to to connect the two to January 6th and finally do some investigating into the FBI's role? I don't know. But the, the problem for Republican leaders in Congress is their own base doesn't trust them mm. to do what needs to be done, which is retaliate against what they're doing, the Biden regime, right. DOJ, et cetera, are doing. Um, they're, they're not trusted. So will we finally push them into that position? I, I don't know. I'm certainly hopeful. Darren, what do you think? I certainly think there are individual politicians who have been heroic when it comes to January 6th, and they will be heroic and have been in relation to the Whitmer kidnapping plot. Um, Institutionally, however, it's hard to be optimistic about anything pertaining to the GOP. And then the other question is, even if they wanted to, what exactly could they do? Um, even in the best case, is the GOP the best vehicle to affect this kind of change? Um, I've speculated earlier on the efficacy of something like a church committee 2.0. Mm. That might be nice, but even that I have to acknowledge um, would be difficult to do because who's going to be running the committee? How would it conduct its investigations? What kind of um, 
what kind of enforcement powers would it actually have in relation to whatever mm -hmm. findings it makes? And so, like, the, the power structure is so converged at this point that it's, it's very hard to see how GOP could affect reform at that level. And that's discounting the kind of the narrative ADD that's formed. Like, in order to get anything done, you have to stick with one narrative, one point. Ideally, you focus the problem on a specific right. person and you stick with it. Whereas it's so easy for the GOP to say, you know, maybe they'll pay lip service with a tweet or if you're lucky, some kind of hearing. And then the next day they'll talk about Disney and the next day they'll talk about something else. And they'll, you know, switch yeah. from, you know, the outrage of the day to the next day. And then AOC will wear a dress they don't like. And then they'll talk about that. And then ultimately <laughs> nothing will get done. And so right. it's it's very hard to be optimistic in that regard. I think we might be better off, and uh, just as, as a caveat, is a joke, but you have to think we might be better off to have Elon Musk dedicate $3 billion to just buy off the FBI, and maybe we could get some good people in there. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. <laughs> inter like interesting. Interesting. Solution. Can we get Elon Musk to buy a 10% stake in the FBI? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad solution. I was going to ask, you know, because I was going to ask if there's anything else going forward, any other solutions. That seems like a pretty good one and a good note to end it on. But I did want to ask you both. Well, first of all, I want to I, I should have said at the beginning, I want to encourage all of you who have not read it and who have not bought Julie Kelly's book January 6th yet. Please do it. And while I have Darren here, I want to encourage Darren. I hope that uh, I hope that Darren is, is working on a on a long project about this, too, because really the work of Julie. And, and Darren has been so important. This is this is uh, this is an enormous event uh, in American history. And without Darren and Julie, we would all be in the dark. It would look fishy and it would look strange. And there'd be people in corners of the internet who'd say this 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 doesn't look right. But Darren and Julie have have spent spent their time on it. They've spent their emotions on it too. I, I you know I I I, I mean it, it's painful to watch as some of these cases have unfolded, especially the, the Matthew Perna case, just just an, an awful tragedy for a family and, 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 and this young man. And so Darren and Julie have devoted, you know, so much for this and have really um, honored, honored us all, honored their fellow, uh, their fellow citizens and, and neighbors. And uh, so I wanna thank them again. And I wanna thank you all for, for listening today. And um, the recording will be up shortly. So if any of your friends or family or anyone else you think needs to hear this, the stuff that Julie and Darren had to say today, please tell them that they'll be able to find it shortly. In the meantime, uh, Julie and Darren, thanks so much again. If you guys, if you guys have a closing, closing word, please feel free. Well, thank you, Lee, so much for um, inviting us. And the, I think we're going to learn a lot more about both of these uh, these scandals in the year coming. I would just encourage people to go read all of Darren's work. Um, and, of course, my work at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. I know we'll be tag teaming a lot of this coverage uh, in this year and certainly next year. So um, thank you just so much for including me today. 
Likewise, much more, much more to come. I'd encourage everyone check out revolver.news. You can go in our exclusive section, check out our archives. If you want to get the details on all of the events related to January 6th, including the infamous, uh, now infamous Ray Epps pieces, um, that's where to go, revolver.news. And I'm on Twitter at Darren J. Beattie. And uh, thanks so much for for having me on. Darren and, Darren and Julie, thanks so much. My final word is this. We're all right to complain about the prestige media, the prestige press, but I want to say I, I, I see it all the time, whether it's different researchers or stuff that people are doing on social media, as much as we may hate it sometimes. But um, there are real journalists and there are people who are doing hard work, and Julie and Darren are 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 the top two. So thank you all again. And um, I think we should do this again soon too. There's still a lot more to cover and there'll be more developments coming up. In the meantime, hope you all have a fantastic weekend. See you next Saturday at 4 p.m. Thank you. Bye.